chapter 14, verses 32 through 52. That's where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 14, verses 32 through 52. And I'm kind of, I'm getting back to my roots here with this message. I'm getting a little bit back into my comfort zone this morning because today I want us to take a look at this story in the passage of Scripture and I want us to find um, what it means to follow Jesus in the story of this passage. I preached this sermon uh, for our teens about three years ago um, when Daniel and Emily had Cooper. Um, And it was when I first started here at the church, and I've been itching to preach it again um, for you all on a Sunday morning for for adults. Because we're going to learn what it means to follow Jesus by looking at one uh, one of the most overlooked, one of the most underrated characters in the crucifixion narrative. Let's take a look at this passage of scripture here this morning. It's Mark 14, 32 through 52. And it says this, They went to the place called Gethsemane, and he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. He took took with him Peter and James and John and began to be distressed and agitated. And he said to them, I am deeply grieved even to death. Remain here and keep awake. Verse 35, And going a little farther, he threw himself on the ground and prayed that, if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. He said, Abba, Father, For you, all things are possible. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I want, but what you want. He came and found them sleeping, and he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not keep awake one hour? Verse 38, keep awake and pray that you might not come into the time of trial. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again, he went away and prayed, saying the same words. And once more he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were very heavy, and they did not know what to say to him. Verse 41. He came a third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? Enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up. Let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. This is verse 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, arrived. And with him there was a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. So when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid hands on him and arrested him. But one of those who stood near drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, cutting off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as though I were a bandit? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not arrest me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. In verse 50, all of them, all of them deserted him and fled. Here's verse 51. But a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth and ran off naked. Let's pray. Dear God, this morning as we approach this this gospel passage, this the beginning of, of Christ's crucifixion, Lord. I pray that you will open this scripture up to us, that you will, you will show us what it might mean for us this morning to follow you, Lord, by looking at this certain young man here in verses 51 and 52. God, we pray that, that our hearts will be open to your spirit, Lord. And as we pray so often, God, um, we hope that your spirit will fill us and we will leave this place ready to follow you and whatever that means um, for us as we go out into our homes and into the community. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Now, I told you that I had preached this sermon once before, and it is very much a a, 
a youth group message, or at least the title is. In fact, I told my wife the title of, of this sermon, and she strongly encouraged, and that's probably not a strong enough phrase, but strongly encouraged me to not use the title for this sermon for the adults. But I decided to go ahead, and, and the series that I preach for our teens, and the, the sermon this morning is going to be called, actually, I'll just let you read it. It's Naked and Afraid. All right. Naked and Afraid. I didn't want to change this for the adults, um, but in this series for the teens, it was one of the most fun series that I've, I've ever preached. Uh, we took stories from the Bible of people, well, people who fulfilled both of these qualities that are up on the screen this morning. Uh, we looked at the story of Adam and Eve. We had the story of the man that was filled with the legion of demons that you find there in Mark. Uh, we, we talked about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And then in, in week four, we ended it with looking at this certain young man from the passage that we just read. This certain young man who followed Jesus. Now, I said I was going to be getting back into my element a little bit this morning. I, I do want to tell this, this young man's story. I want you to leave today feeling that we had a little bit of fun together. We laughed at maybe a, a silly sermon title, but you also learned something about two verses of Scripture in the Bible that, that you may have always overlooked. And, and I'll read them again. It's these, two pass it's these two verses right here. It says this, But a certain young man was following him, wearing nothing but a linen cloth. They caught hold of him, but he left the linen cloth, and ran off naked. And these two verses here in Mark have, have fascinated me over the past few years because they just seem completely and totally random there in the passage. Like, like why would they think, why would they be important? And in fact, the book of Mark is known, it's known for leaving frou-frou details like this out of the account of the life of Jesus. The author of Mark he doesn't jazz anything up. He doesn't put things in there that, that might complicate the story. He, he's more concerned about giving this factually accurate portrayal of Jesus. And that's why it's one of the shortest of the Gospels. The other three Gospel passages, while they tell a factually accurate account of Jesus, um, they always give their own spin to it. They're, they read more like sermons than they do um, like a history book, but, but Mark is different. It, it's giving this, it's just straightforward. It is telling us this is who Jesus was. There's no bias on it, there's nothing like that, except for these two, these two verses right here. These two verses out of the middle of nowhere with, with no context, with no explanation, with not even a name for this certain young man that we're looking at this morning, he takes two sentences and completely shifts the eye, our eyes, the eye of the audience, whoever is reading this passage, to something else entirely than what is happening. And since that time that Mark wrote these two verses, and he takes maybe... One of the most important stories in the gospel readings, the, the crucifixion of Jesus. And, and he, he draws our attention away from what is happening onto this certain young man. Since he wrote that 2,000 years ago, theologians and Bible scholars have been beating their heads up against the wall, trying to, trying to figure out who this guy was, trying to figure out who this certain young man is, and why Mark thought it was so important for, enough to add him to the story. And these Bible scholars have speculated a lot, and they've found a lot of evidence. There's evidence to believe that this certain young man actually could have been an angel. And there's been some evidence that, that points to where it could have been the same angel that's present at the, at the resurrection at the tomb in chapter 16. Others have said that, that the evidence points to where this is actually Mark himself. And the reason he thought it was so important to, to take our eyes off of the story and add himself in there is because he was for the first time placing himself in the, the, the story of Jesus. 
But, but others say that this man was probably the caretaker or the keeper of the garden, which would explain the state of undress that he came to the scene in. He, he, he was living there on the premises. Now, I would strongly encourage you to go home uh, this afternoon and research this young man and come to your own conclusions about him. Just a simple Google search of the naked man in Mark 14 should get you there and should get you a lot of different opinions of who this guy was. But for the purpose of our, of our message this morning, the final explanation is the one that we're going to kind of hang our hat on. Let's go ahead and assume that this young man was the Garden of Gethsemane. And before I go on, I do want to give just a little bit of a warning, uh, seeing how there's only two verses that talk about this guy, and they don't even tell us his name. Um, I will, I'm going to be taking just a few liberties. I'm not going to cross any lines. I'm not going to lie to you. I'm not going to try to make something up that didn't happen. But I want to take a look at this passage of Scripture from what could have been this young man's perspective. And because we're going to assume that he was the garden keeper, we're going to call him this morning Adam since we know that another biblical garden keeper by the same name. Now, I'm getting a lot of fuzzy looks, so is this okay? Can we do that this morning? Can we take a look at, at what this young man may have witnessed, what we're, we're, who we're calling Adam, um, through the eyes of what happened here in this passage? Is that okay? If not, I can ju we'll just go home. All right, I got one. Frankie's okay with it, so we're good. Let's dive into the story uh, of Adam. From what we can tell in this passage of Scripture um, that we've just read, it's, it's pretty late at night. The disciples are struggling to stay awake, and they've already had, they've already had dinner, the Last Supper, and those two themselves are, are two totally different sermons. But because of that, we know that it is late at night, and we can safely assume that if Adam is the garden keeper, that he's probably asleep. He had probably had a long day of, of keeping the Garden of Gethsemane. He, his back was worn out from, from hauling those 50-pound uh, bags of fertilizer. And he and his wife had finally been able to, to lie down in bed and get some much-needed sleep when this passage begins to start. All, the, all of these events began to transpire. And as Christ is, is quietly praying there in Adam's garden, Judas and the large crowd of people with weapons come up and, and they're ready for a fight. And as Judas walks up to Jesus and betrays him with a kiss. They seize him. And there's this, this slight scuffle between the disciples and the guards. And, and we know from the other Gospels that it is actually, it's Peter who draws his sword out, and he cuts off the ear of, of the servant of the high priest. And then Jesus tells them to put away their swords. And we know that he picks up, there in Luke, he picks up the ear of the young man and he places it back on his head. And I'm sure that in the commotion of all this, the, the violent mob and all that was going on there, I'm sure that, that uh, Adam is woken up. He's living on, on the premises. He's living nearby. And if he's anything like most other married men um, like us today, he probably hears the commotion outside and he thinks, well, it's not inside, so I'm not really going to worry about it. I'm not going to go check it out. Um, if they get me, they get me, but I'm not going to worry about it. If he's anything like me, he just goes back to sleep until he's woken up maybe from a swift elbow to the ribcage from his wife uh, saying, hey, Adam, go look at what's going on out there. Go look at what those noises are. So he probably crawls out of bed. He, he might have grabbed the dagger that was sitting on the bedside table there beside his bed, and he runs up to his, this scene in his pajamas. And as he gets closer to this mob of people, he observes this scuffle, and he's hiding in the shadows to stay out of sight because he's in his pajamas. And as he watches all of this transpire, he, he probably recognizes Jesus. 
because he had been walking around and teaching in Jerusalem a lot. So he, he recognizes Jesus, and as Christ bends down to pick the ear of the slave up, and as he places it back on the side of his head, I'm sure there is no doubt in Adam's mind that he was witnessing the arrest of Christ with this mob of people. He had probably heard Christ speak before, as many in Jerusalem had. And so he decided that he was going to stick around. He was going to stay. And, and as he witnesses the arrest of Christ, as they bind the hands of Jesus, and as they begin to, to walk him away towards what would eventually be his death, the rest of the disciples, the rest of those who were with Jesus, fled. And the original language of this passage emphasizes what happens here. It emphasizes that there was not a single one of the followers of Jesus that was left behind, but every last one of them ran and fled away, except for this certain young man, Adam. And Adam, re realizing the danger and the urgency of the situation, he probably could have also just went back home, he could have crawled back in bed, and he could have stayed safe and sound, but instead, he follows Jesus. And I can imagine him following along in the trees or trying to stay out of sight, but, but not desperately not wanting to leave, not wanting to quit following Jesus. And as he's trying to keep up with where they're taking Christ, he, he might have stepped on a twig that cracks too loud, and the guards that arrested Jesus turn, and one of them probably yells out, Seize him! And they run towards him. And there's this, this, this slight scuffle. There may have been some of a, some, a bit of a skirmish, but we know that he's young and he's, he's quick, so he slips away and he leaves his pajamas in the hands of one of those guards. And he flees, the passage says, naked and probably afraid. I can imagine him sprinting back home and busting down the door to his house, yelling about what he's seen. He busts in and he yells, Honey, we have to go. Let's get dressed. They're about to kill Jesus. And you know, while in the passage of Scripture, Adam's story ends there in verse 52, and we don't ever see him again, because this was such a public event, because the crucifixion and the trial of Christ was, was where everybody was going that night, it was, it was so public, I can imagine that, that Adam's story didn't stop there, that he didn't just go home um, and go to bed, but instead, I think he sat there in the crowds just outside of the story, with only a few verses that didn't even give him a name, and he probably watched. And as the trial of Jesus begins in the square, Adam probably watched. And as the crowd cries out, we want Barabbas, Adam could have watched. And as Jesus is taken, and as he's beaten with the whip, Adam probably watched. As the crown of thorns was, was hammered onto the head of Christ, and as his body was stretched out on the cross, Adam could have watched. And after these hours of suffering, after slowly fading away, when Jesus cries out, it is finished, and he takes his last breath, Adam probably watched. Because through it all, through all, despite the risks that were there, despite submitting himself to, to showing up in, in this situation, in, in his pajamas, despite all, he was there. He was the one that followed Jesus. Now, I know that, that this story might, might seem like a stretch to take these two verses and, and formulate this story out of it. But the proof that we need, the, the proof that we need for this message this morning is, is right here that this certain young man was the only one that followed Christ. 
And here, here's what I want us to ask ourselves this morning. I, I the point here is not to tell some, some long, elaborate story or to get into some kind of theological argument about who this certain young man actually could have been if he was Mark or if he was the garden keeper like we're saying or if he was an angel. The point is not to get caught up in, in this argument here, but the point is to ask ourselves, are we willing to follow Jesus when we have nothing left? The disciples were Christ's most devout followers. But when the worst of the worst came, they failed to follow Jesus. In fact, as we look at the four gospel, the books of the gospel, almost every time in the gospel passages, every single time that the disciples have this opportunity to step up, to show that they have faith in who Christ is saying he is, every single time they fail to have faith in Christ. But here is this certain young man who... In, in his undergarments, in his pajamas, with nothing with him, he follows Jesus in spite of the obvious danger that he was putting himself into. I mean, I, I said that he had probably heard Jesus speak before, and do you want to know why I'm so sure that this young man had heard Jesus speak? It's because in spite of that danger, in spite of being in his pajamas, he thought it was worthwhile to follow Jesus to the cross. And the title of this passage, or this message this morning might sound silly, uh, Naked and Afraid. But nakedness is used from the beginning of the Bible to, to the end of the Bible um, to, to symbolize shame. And this young man, Adam, followed Jesus in his shame and in his fear. Because he knew, and get this this morning, he knew that Christ was worth following. Now, I've said this before when, I, when I've been preaching um, but it's impossible for, for a pastor to know every single situation that, that comes in on a Sunday morning, um, to know every story that, that we're all coming in with. Um, but I'm willing to bet that all of us today walked in here facing feelings of weakness, whatever that might be. And, and I'm willing to bet that some of us walked in here this morning facing feelings of shame and fear. And if we walked in here with one of those two things, or we walked in here feeling that we have some kind of weakness that we've been holding on to, let's ask ourselves this question, are we willing to trust Jesus in the midst of that shame, in the midst of that fear, in the midst of those weaknesses? There's this passage of scripture from Paul that I love in 2 Corinthians. It talks about the power that Christ can bring to our weaknesses, and it says this, it's 2 Corinthians 12 verses 9 through 10. Paul says, but, but Christ said to me, or God said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Paul here is, is talking something about something that was bringing him shame, was bringing him guilt. He describes it multiple times in the letters to churches that he writes that we find there in the New Testament. But he is saying here in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that because he follows Christ, he can now rejoice in those things that bring him weakness. Because, listen here, it is because of those things that Christ can work through him. 
Paul is telling us this morning as the 21st century church here in Greenbrier, Arkansas, that if we didn't have those things holding us back, if we didn't have those weaknesses, if we didn't have, have that shame, or if we didn't have, have that guilt, then we would never fully rely on Christ. Instead, he says that it is because of our nakedness. It is because of our fear that the power of Christ can rest on us. And I think Paul would tell us that instead of continually asking ourselves, can I have the courage, can we have the courage to follow Christ if I have nothing left, we should instead be telling ourselves this, it is only because I have nothing left that I can follow Christ. Paul's words here might show us that it actually wasn't in spite of the nakedness and fear that this certain young man followed Jesus, but instead it could have been because of it. Because he recognized that Jesus had something that he wanted to have. He recognized the power that Christ had. And in his weakness, he knew that to follow Jesus was the thing to do. Paul is telling us today in this 2 Corinthians chapter 12 that the best way for us to approach the throne of God this morning is to be symbolically naked and afraid. To be rejoicing in our weaknesses. And I can tell you something more this morning that, that if you are feeling shame, if, if you are feeling maybe an overwhelming shame or, or an overwhelming guilt, can I tell you right now this morning that that feeling, while it may be a weakness, that feeling of shame or guilt is not from God, okay? There's this author, her name is uh, Brene Brown, if you've ever heard of her, and I, I strongly encourage you to go and read some of her work. Um, but she has done some amazing work on the topic and the feeling uh, of shame, and what her work shows us is that these are not positive feelings, they aren't good motivators, and that they, these feelings don't come from God, but instead, these are lies from the deceiver. Instead, the, the shame, that voice in the back of your head that may be telling you that, that you aren't good enough to follow Christ or, or that, that you aren't good enough to come to church or, or that, that you should, should be afraid of someone finding out and treating you differently, that voice is a lie from the deceiver. And whatever we've done, whatever, whoever we are, whatever we walked into this place this morning with, this morning, each and every one of us Listen here, when we walked through the doors of the church this morning, we walked into the garden of Gethsemane, and Jesus is here. Jesus is here. And to each and every one of us, he is saying this. He's telling us, I'm headed to the cross. Follow me. He's saying, follow me. Follow me, and you can lay yourself down. Follow me, and you can forget your shame and who you are. Follow me, and you can lay down those burdens. You can lay down your temptations, and you can lay down your sin down at my feet. Follow me, and you can lay down your weaknesses. Because we know that when we follow Christ to the cross, that in three days something else comes after that, and it's called the resurrection. And so when we follow Christ to the cross, we follow Christ to the resurrection. And when we lay ourselves down, when we die to ourselves, we know that Christ is also telling us in three days we are going to rise a new creation. And those burdens will be yoked to him. And sins will be washed white as snow. And in our weaknesses, his power will be made perfect. Now, I understand that this, 
is a lot more difficult to live out than it is to, to stand behind a podium and say. Um, I understand that, that for some of us, we might not even really know what, what following Jesus looks like. Or, or perhaps for most of us this morning, it's the fact that we've been claiming to follow Jesus for so long that we forgot what it means to follow him, and instead we're trying to lead him. Now, that, that happens a lot. When we've been following Jesus for so long that, that we feel like he's, he's, he's leading us, but really it is us dragging him along, forcing, trying to force him to follow us. That could be the case. But this morning, like I have in sermons before, and I try to almost every time I preach, I, I invite you to ask Jesus something this morning, and that is, what is your next step in following him? He's the only one that can tell you where he's going to lead you and what it takes to follow. This morning, I invite you to ask him, what is my next step? And each and every one of us have this next step to take. No matter if we've been following Jesus for two days or 30 years, we still have another step to take. Because let me tell you this morning, uh, we are called to be continually uh, enabling the Holy Spirit to make us look a little bit more like Christ. Now, some, for, for some of you old-time Nazarenes, it's this word called sanctification, if anybody's ever heard of it, or holiness. And that means, what that means is that Christ is this perfect reflection. And we were created to be a perfect reflection of Christ. In the very beginning, we were created to mimic Christ, to be that in this world. But because of sin, that image was broken. And we are called to day by day be taking step by step to mend that image, to let the Holy Spirit work in us and create in us the image of Christ once again. And we do that step by step by step. Maybe your next step is to, is you feel Christ calling you towards baptism. That you need to, to publicly proclaim that you are committed to following him. Or maybe, maybe you hear Christ telling you this morning that, that you were called to, to become a member of our church, to become fully invested and fully enveloped in the community of believers here. That could be your next step. Or maybe it's, it's just simply that God is calling you to be a friend to somebody. Or it could be that we are being called to let Christ sanctify us from a desire or from, or for, from a temptation or a sin that we've been caught up in. Or maybe this morning our next step is to just simply fall down at the feet of Jesus and ask for his comfort. Ask for a, a release of the shame that, that we've walked in here with this morning. I, I don't know what Christ is calling you specifically into, but I know that we all have that, that next step that we need to take. We are all called to continually be following Christ. We are called to, to lay down ourselves as living sacrifices, to, to die to ourselves. And that means that, that we, we give up our own aspirations, we give up our own desires, we give up what we want, and instead we fully rely on and we fully desire and we fully let Christ live through us. We fully desire that kind of lifestyle. Following Christ is a decision that we don't make just once, but I've said this before, we make it day by day by day. We make it moment by moment. You, you look yourself in the mirror in the, in the morning and you say, today I'm going to follow Christ. And, and when, you're, when you're put up in a situation that you don't know if you can make the right decision, you say, you know what, for the next, for the next hour I'm going to follow Christ. For the next minute I choose to follow Christ. It's decision after decision. It's not just a one-time calling down at the altar. 
But I am going to open up our altars this morning, and if you would like to come and talk to Jesus about what it means to follow him, you're more than welcome to come. Or if you would like to pray over our prayer chest here, which is a list of names of people that we are, we are praying for, um, you're more than welcome to come or, or pray with friends and family about a specific prayer request. But this morning, once again, I believe that the purpose of this whole story, the purpose of looking at this young man Adam here in this passage of Scripture that we have all overlooked or raised our eyebrows at and, and then, and then went, went on, the purpose of that is to ask ourselves this morning, or am I following Christ in the midst of my weaknesses? Let's pray about that this morning. Dear God, this, this morning we just we admit... We come here admitting that we don't have it all figured out, God. We admit um, that we have weaknesses, that we have, have come in here this morning with something that, that is holding us back. But God, as Paul stated in, there in 2 Corinthians that we just read, Lord, I, we pray this morning that we will be able to rejoice in those things because we know that, they have, that it allows you to fill us up. It allows you to give us your strength, God, and we thank you so much for that. Lord, as, as we try to discern right now what it means to follow you, I pray that you'll make that clear to us, God. God, if we need courage, give us courage. If we need strength, please give us strength. God, there are so many, so many things that, that people could have walked in here this morning, but, but I pray that you will just show them that as they walk out of here, they are walking out with your presence, that you are going with them, no matter if they're going to work or they're going into our community or they're going into their homes, God, that you are going with them and your strength is following. God, this morning I pray that we will follow you to the cross, that we will learn what it means to truly follow Christ, and that one day, Lord, we will see the resurrection. We ask these things in your name. Y'all are dismissed.